Ephesians and chapter 2. And I'm still reading from the NASB. But I've got the NIV here. Verse 11 then. Ephesians 2, 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, that he himself, that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, and are of God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. I'd just like to read Paul's prayer, and let's make it our prayer as we go into this study, just back at the end of the previous chapter. Let's make it our prayer. I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened, so you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? What, are the surpass, what is the surpassing greatness of his power to us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And he's put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Well, yesterday we mentioned that this great epistle tends to concentrate on the church, though of course it deals with many, many other subjects. And in this chapter particularly, or towards the end of this chapter, we begin to look at God's new temple. And that's what we've called this. And if you're looking through the notes that were distributed yesterday, you might find it helpful. If you're making notes or if you want to follow especially some of those longer quotes, uh, that's there to serve you, to help you. All right, so... Paul starts off once again, he kind of retracts, having talked to them about what they were individually. Now he's going to go on to talk about the corporate people of God, and he backs up again and starts reminding them of what they once were in relation to the people of God. He told them what they once were in relation to God, that they were dead in trespasses and sins, they were in a hopeless condition. Now he's telling them what they uh, were in relation to the community that God was already favouring, namely the Jewish community. He says, why, what you once were, you were called the uncircumcision. It's a kind of derogatory description of them. They did not have the mark of circumcision. They had no uh, covenant relationship with God. The circumcision spoke of that covenant that God initially made with Abraham and marked out uh, the people of God in the old covenant. But notice he, from the beginning, just sows that seed of doubt about the relevance of that by saying, called the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision. Uh, and he says, performed by hands. 
He knows he's going to talk about something of great spiritual worth. Something of huge spiritual significance. And so, although he says, yeah, you were uncircumcised, you were regarded as the uncircumcision, that kind of dismissive attitude that was current in his day by the uh, leading Jewish people of that day. But he says, no, he's dismissive of their elitism. He says, well, that's just the circumcision performed by hands and uh, just in flesh. And perhaps in Romans chapter 2 we get a a fuller treatment of what he thinks about that. For he says in uh, Romans and uh, chapter 2 verse 28, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he's a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. And there he's echoing something that Jeremiah said centuries before, that God was looking for a circumcision that was of the heart, not just that outward fleshly act. So he says anyway, they were just dismissed. They were the uncircumcision. They were also apart from Christ. They had no hope. They had no expectation of a promised Messiah. That was the condition of these Gentiles at Ephesus and where this letter perhaps circulated. Uh, They didn't have this wonderful hope which the Jewish nation lived with. They'd had these massive and wonderful promises that had come through the prophets. Men like Isaiah had prophesied unto us a child will be born, a son will be given, the government's going to rest on his shoulder, he's going to sit on the, the, the throne of David and it's going to be a great kingdom. David is told he's going to have a son whose kingdom will be everlasting. The Jewish people were so privileged they had this hope of the Messiah. And Paul is saying to these Ephesian, heathen, pagan background people, he says, you didn't have any of these things. You were uncircumcised. You were outside of the hope of the Messiah. That's your background. I want to remind you what you used to be. You were excluded or alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Commonwealth or nation under God. A theocracy, a covenant people, a nation whose identity was wrapped up with their relationship with God. God was their king. The natural king, the man who sat on a physical throne, represented him. Essentially, God was their king. They had this massive privilege that was theirs, that they were a commonwealth of God. And also, he says uh, to these former Gentiles, you were strangers to the covenants. You didn't have any... Insight. You had no hold. You couldn't claim any uh, involvement in the covenants. What covenants? Well, the covenants with, first of all, with Abraham, onwardly with David. God had this extraordinary plan to bless the world. His method was to bless one man. It's an extraordinary way to do it, but it was God's chosen way. He chose Abraham, who was a pagan himself, and revealed himself to Abraham and said, I will bless you. And through your family, through your seed, I will bless all the nations of the earth. And all the nations will come to bow to your God. All the nations, as we read many times in Isaiah and elsewhere, will come to worship Jacob's God. We will all have to abandon our national gods, whatever they might be, and come to acknowledge that's the true God. The God who revealed himself to Abram, to Isaac, to Jacob, down through the centuries. There was a promise, all the nations will be blessed. As many as the stars of the sky, so many shall your seed be. That was the promise. That was God's way of working. And he gave promises to men. He then gave promise to David about his son and about that rule, that kingdom that would stretch across the world. And so these were promises. And Paul is saying, you had, none of, you had no insight into these things. You were outside of this. That's where you came from. That's what you once were. Strangers to the covenant. As William Hendrickson says, Christless, stateless, friendless, hopeless, and godless. That's where we started. Not much hope, not a bright prospect. And so it's good for us sometimes to remember what we were. Sometimes the scripture tells us not to think back to the former things. Other times it seems to remind us, hey, remember what you used to be. Just remember where you started from. And Paul is doing that in this passage. And then you get another, but now. We saw back in verse 4 when he was dealing with it from a different angle. There's that, but God. 
Now he's again with that similar interjection, but now, now is a new day. You used to be this, but now I've got to remind you of some magnificent truths that are true for you. And so he says, but now you, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now the concepts of being far off and near were not uh, unusual to the Jewish mind. We'll come to a verse quoted uh, later on in verse 17. Uh, quoted from uh, Isaiah 57:19, where the Jewish had this awareness that God was near to them. They had the temple. Earlier, they, they had the tabernacle. They had the Ark of the Covenant. God was near to them. And then the heathen were far off. And it was possible for proselytes to draw near. And that sort of language would have been used. And if they wanted to uh, turn their back on their pagan gods and acknowledge this one true God of Israel. They were permitted to come in. They could go through certain rites. They could be baptized. They could be added to the community. They were allowed to draw near. And so that language you'll find in the Old Testament. And Paul borrows that language. He says, you who were formerly far off are now brought near. But actually he introduces two totally new concepts of drawing near which would be very foreign to the Old Testament idea of drawing near to Israel because he says you draw near in Christ and by the blood of Christ. Two totally new concepts of drawing near to the chosen people. It's not just being added to Israel, it's being added to this new community that is in Christ and drawn in by the blood of Christ into a newly formed community. And so borrowing language from the Old Testament about far off and near, but introducing actually a totally new concept that they are actually added into. As we see in verse 14, he is our peace who made us both one. And so here, this particular phrase is referring not to peace between man and God, Not uh, reconciling us to God, but first of all, bringing reconciliation between Jew and Gentile. That's what's being referred to quite plainly in that verse. Now, how has he done that? How has he made Jew and Gentile one? Well, the first thing he's done is he has abolished the law of commandments. That's how he's done it. He's abolished in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. He's done something to break down the dividing wall. There was a dividing wall. Many have pointed out that uh, it was uh, discovered in 1871. An inscription was found in Israel, which was taken from the original temple. It was excavated and discovered. And uh, on this uh, plaque, it was said, the inscription was concerning the Gentiles coming into the, beyond the area that Gentiles were allowed to come. There was a wall of partition that the Israelites were allowed one side, Gentiles were allowed to a certain distance, but this wall represented a total break, a total division among the races, the, uh, a major racial division. Jews were allowed this side, Gentiles were allowed that side. And this great wall of division was keeping apart these people. And in 1871, this plaque with the inscription said, No man of another race is to enter within the fence and the enclosure around the temple. Whoever is caught will have only himself to thank for the death which follows. So the rigorous keeping of that safe area uh, is certainly made clear there. But now we see that in his flesh, that law, the law which separated Jew and Gentile, has been dealt with. Jesus has abolished it. It says in Hebrews it's been made obsolete. And uh, here Lincoln, I've given you a quote here of Andrew Lincoln where he says, the divisiveness was produced by the law as such, by the very fact that Israel possessed the Torah. And so in order to remove the divisiveness, Christ has to deal with the cause, the law itself. He does this in his flesh. Jesus in his flesh abolished 
this law. What do we mean by that? Well, I guess the book of Galatians spends a lot of time dealing with that, where it shows us that Jesus fulfilled the law in two ways. Jesus fulfilled the law by obeying every commandment, submitting himself. He was born under the law. He might fulfill the law totally. He submitted himself to its authority. He fulfilled the law totally as a pure, righteous man. When he died, he said, Satan comes, he's got nothing on me. He challenged people. Who can find fault with me? He lived an innocent life before the law. He was fulfilling the law. He also fulfilled the law by becoming sin for us and substituting for us and being cursed as though he had broken every law in the book. And so it says... Cursed is the one that hangs upon the tree. And he bore our curse totally in his flesh. And so the law was fulfilled in thoroughly cursing him, pouring out the law's righteous judgment. Jesus fulfilled the law in taking its full curse by standing in our place. And so as far as the law is concerned, as J.P. Phillips translates Galatians 2.20, as far as the law is concerned, I may consider I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. I have died to the law. Romans 7 argues it. We haven't time to get into all that. But Paul demonstrates that we have died to the law. We used to be married to it. It used to dominate our lives. We were in bondage to this oppressive, overbearing husband, fault-finding, making us aware of our sin and failure. And then, hallelujah, Romans 7.4, Paul suddenly says, but we were made to die to the law by the body of Christ. We have been crucified with him. The law is satisfied that it cursed Christ. And all who are in Christ have been crucified with him. It's history. It's in my past. I've already been crucified with Christ to the law. The debt's paid. It's all over. And in his flesh, he killed, abolished that way of relating to God through the law and ordinances. It's no longer a dividing wall because Jesus in his flesh thoroughly fulfilled it. Praise his wonderful name. So we're no longer under law because Jesus has put us under grace. And so the abolition of the law of commandments has made it possible for us to relate Jew and Gentile together because the law is no longer relevant. Now, of course, in Jesus' day, or at least in Paul's day, that was a huge battle for people whose lives have been entrenched in expressing their godliness by observing certain days, certain foods, uh, certain travel arrangements on the Sabbath, the temple, etc. Their whole godliness was expressed in this strange outward manner, which of course not only gave them as they regarded the inside track to God, but also cut out all the other nations. When God abolished all that and opened the way, nations could fl- come flooding in. Understanding we're not under law, but under grace is absolutely fundamental to world evangelization. The message of grace opens the door to the Gentiles. The more we, even in our evangelicalism or whatever nation we come from, certainly from the UK, carrying missions to the world, if we carry to the world missions which are entrenched in all kinds of legalistic attitudes to fiddly little things, we cut out People who don't need to learn those rules because they're not actually part of the gospel. Legalism is an enemy of mission. Grace opens the door to world mission because it lets people come direct to God without reference to our rules and regulations and laws. Not only the old covenant law, but the laws we've added very often as evangelicals. It is a very strange thing to go to such places as Africa or the Far East and find repeated in totally alien cultures, weird English ecclesiology. Crazy to see them wearing the kind of clothes that were worn back in this country two or three hundred years ago and imposing that as part of the church is foolishness. And so Paul fought the battle, which we mustn't get into too much now, but he fought the battle with legalism motivated by his passion for world mission. He knew that if the church, if the if the church that was beautifully coming to birth was held down with these rules and regulations, we would never win the world. 
That's obviously just the application. The fact is, we don't need it anyway. Because we have a saviour who has brought us right through to God. The abolition of the law of commandments. It's over. Christ is the end of the law to everyone who believes. Paul says, knowing the law is good if you use it lawfully. Knowing it's not for the righteous, but for sinners. Once we've come to Christ, we come to a new relationship with God without reference to it. It's important for us to see that. So how has he done this? How has he made us one? First, by the abolition of the law of commandments. Abolished it. It's abolished. It's important. It's obsolete. I love that word too in Hebrews. It's behind us. And then next, the creation of a single new humanity. Now maybe this is the main theme of what we're looking at this morning and so crucially important. Removing the enmity has cleared the ground for something new. Christ's purpose was nothing less than a new creation. Verse 15, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity. That's how the NIV puts it. Let's really hear that. His purpose, what's God's purpose? His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity. We saw yesterday how he came down into our death identified with our death totally, was crucified, died, entered into our living death, if you like, became dead, and then when God raised him up, he raised us up together with him. We saw this yesterday. Together with him. And now that represents a new humanity. It's not just for you and me individually to say, I have been crucified with Christ. It is for us to see we collectively have been brought into this one new man, this one new humanity in the earth. Lincoln says, the separation of the Gentiles from Israel was so deep that it took a creative act to fill it. Yet Christ has done more than simply bring Gentiles to Israel. The new person he has created transcends those categories. Right? The one new man transcends those categories of Jew and Gentile. And to quote Dr. Lloyd-Jones, sorry it's a bit extensive but so very helpful, quote here, the church is something absolutely new that's been brought into being, something that was not there before. It's comparable to what happened at the very beginning when God created the heavens and the earth. There was nothing there before, before God created Creation means bringing into being something that was previously not there, non-existent. It is making something out of nothing. How does God make peace between Jew and Gentile? It's not by modification of what was there before. It's not even by an improvement of what was there before. God doesn't just take a Jew and do something to him and take a Gentile and do something to him and, therefore, and thereby bring them together. Not at all. I wish I could do his voice. It is something entirely new. Creation. Now this is vital to the whole position. As we enter the Christian church, we do so as new creations. We enter into something that is entirely new. The church must not be conceived of as a coalition of a number of parties no, it's the abolition of the old and the creation of something entirely new. It's a wonderful truth. Many get confused about who are the people of God. What is the people of God? And it's a very important truth for us, dear friends, to get freed from our individualism, our personal piety, that locked-in thing. And it's not just for us to glory in our church, though we want to do that, or our denominational stream or group or whatever we call ourselves. We must rejoice in this one new man, a people. And very rarely do you find Christians who are excited about the people of God. And sometimes because they have not become excited about the people of God, they focus on other things that make them excited. And it's very important for us to see God wants a people. He has always wanted a people. His ultimate cry will be, I am their God. They are my people. And we must, if we haven't had the experience in our own spirit yet, ask God to trans transfer our thinking, enlarge our capacity. 
When I first heard that great uh, musical presentation, Come Together, I don't know if some of you will remember that, from Jimmy Owens, Come Together in Jesus' Name. It was on at the Dome here in Brighton, two and a half thousand seater, and I remember the choir came out, and they started singing out and belting out that song, You are the people of God, and he loves you, and he's chosen you for himself, so come together. I thought my heart was going to burst. I thought I was going to burst. I was so excited. You are the people of God. And he loves you. And he's chosen you. We need to get our heads up. Does the future have a church? Listen, this is the people of God. It's not the old church, fiddly little thing, poor old thing. This is God's people. Now, dear friends, I don't want to be misunderstood, but some Christians are more interested in what's happening in Israel because there's a people. I want us to get excited about this. You're the people of God. Whether your background is Jewish or Gentile, we're the people of God. And God wants us excited about that because that's the whole goal and objective. He creates one new humanity in the earth. A new nation that didn't exist before. Like when he created the stars from nothing. He says, now I will create. And it's important. Yeah, I can find myself then if any man is in Christ. Yes, me. I am a new creation. Yeah, great. But listen, the whole thing's a new creation. There's a new community that didn't exist before on the planet. And when someone gets saved, they're added to this dynamic people. But so when I hear a story, as I did a couple of weeks ago, about a Chinese pastor in prison and with his legs broken through punishment and his friends having to carry him around and even help him to go into the toilet and the agony he was going through in a, a Chinese prison. And then a guy came to him and said, you're to go. He said, I can't go, I'm just in pain. He said, I'm going to pray for you. And he prayed for him and his legs were healed. And he walked out and doors opened. And he was speaking in London recently. Now that is my brother. That's, that's the same people. He's in the same humanity. And we need to be excited about being a people. And if we're the more we're excited about a people, the less we'll be thrilled about whether we're NFI or whatever. You know, we have friendships and relationships which, of course, we don't despise. We value the bonds of love. But dear friends, this is a much bigger thing. It's so important for us to get excited about being the people of God. This new creation in the earth. Never existed before. And so this is what the text is saying. We need to really, see, we need to let the text speak for itself. And that's why it's important. And we felt it was good to have a, a session where we're just verse by verse. We're just going through it. Because you get popular things and going around and you'll find there's trends and groupings who get taken up with all kinds of funny ideas. What does it actually say? It says, he's made us into one new man. Again, if I continue quoting Dr. Lloyd-Jones, he says here, the old is entirely done away with. The Jew's been done away with as such. Even as the Gentile has been done away with in Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. You are all one in Christ Jesus, Galatians 3.28. In Christ Jesus, there is neither circumcision, circumcision avails anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. Jew has gone, Gentile's gone. All that belonged to Jew, all that belonged to Gentile is irrelevant henceforward. It is the new creature that matters. The unity of this one new body is an absolute unity. There is no such thing as a Jewish section of the Christian church. There is no such thing as a Gentile section of the Christian church. And there never will be. The old has been done away with. Now that's so important. That's so important. That affects some Christian lives who get distracted and muddled and confused and don't realise that by... Promoting certain things, they are going in the face of apostolic doctrine that says this is the great celebration of heaven, that the two are one. Yeah. And so people get sentimentally caught up in something that is failing to hit the point here. Now it's so important then to see this, the creation of the one new man that so satisfies God's heart. And the it is the fulfilment of the promises. And we Gentiles, most of us in this room, former Gentiles, though we won't be all here in this room, we had no hope, we had no insight, we had no involvement in the covenants, the Christ who wasn't our Christ. We have had the huge privilege of coming to know Israel's God, the true God. 
He's not England's God. All right? We're not promoting, when we go on mission, a Western culture. When we go to India or Africa, we're not saying you've got to take on Englishness because it's the Western God. This is the American God. This is the English. No, 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 no. We are all bowing to Israel's God. He's the true God. He's the only God. He chose to work that way. That's the way it's happened. And God sent this Christ. And in him, going right down into death, the fulfillment of promise, as it was in Isaiah 53, he's smitten of God and afflicted, as God said it would be. But then he's raised up. And they're told, right, lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes, because we're all coming in to this wonderful Christ. Hallelujah. And so we find here the creation of the single new humanity, verse 15. Then verse 16, the reconciliation of Jew and Gentile to God, in verse 16. That he might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, having put to death the enmity. Now here, the hostility that's being dealt with, the reconciliation involved, is now no longer between Jew and Gentile, but both Jew and Gentile being reconciled to God. They both need to be reconciled to God. Jesus has killed the enmity. As Robinson says, the slain was slayer too. As he died, he put to death. His death puts to death the enmity. And with the new status of the one new man, it's clear that Gentiles not only were added to Israel's privileges, but that both Jew and Gentile needed to be reconciled to God. The gospel, first of all, came to the Jewish nation. Jesus said, I go to the lost sheep of Israel. The message of reconciliation was first to the Jews. And so both Jew and Gentile, it wasn't simply as was understood in the Old Testament that those who were far off could become proselytes and join the already accepted Jews. No, it's gone on from there. Now, he says, through the cross, both Jew and Gentile are reconciled to God. We both need reconciliation. Jesus went out to the Jews of his day, offering reconciliation to God, saying to his Jewish contemporaries, you mustn't forget, Jesus' whole gospel ministry was to the Jewish nation, saying, I'm the door, I'm the way. If you enter in through me, you can be saved, you Jewish people which was, of course, so offensive to the Pharisees because they said, listen, we've already got Abraham's blood. And John the Baptist said, listen, God can make children of Abraham out of these stones. They had to learn they also needed to be reconciled to God. So the two are reconciled to God. New Testament gospel was applied to Jew and Gentile. Those far off and those near also both had to hear the reconciliation, first of Jew to Gentile in the one new man, and then the reconciliation of both to God. And then we come to this next phrase, which I forgot to dictate into the, pro, into the notes, if you've got it. You can add D, both now have access. Both now have access. C was reconciliation of Jew and Gentile. D, both now have access. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, here's one of the great Trinitarian verses of Scripture. It's just a short Scripture, but you'll find all the Trinity there in verse 18. For through him, that is through Christ, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. There you've got the Trinity in one little succinct verse. Now we have access. could be translated... An introduction. You find the same thing in Romans 5, 1 and 2, where it talks about through Jesus we have our introduction. We can get in. Some years ago, Wendy and I went to Washington, D.C. I was speaking at C.J. Mahaney's church there, and uh, I had a friend who worked at the White House. And uh, they said, if you'd like, you could go into the White House this afternoon. Would you like that? Whew, would I like that? It would be fantastic. I thought we'd go to the White House. But, so we went down to the White House and they said, there's a guy, his name's John. He will um, get you in. And he'll meet you down there at such and such a time. We arrived at uh, Pennsylvania Avenue. There we were, in front of the White House, and walked towards the gate. And a massive policeman with a big gun uh, approached us. And uh, he said, uh, where are you going? So we said, oh, yeah, oh, uh, yeah. Um, 
we thought we were going in the White House, huh? And he said, oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, how are you going to get in? Oh, well, we know a guy. Oh, you know a guy. You know, it's, we weren't terribly impressed with ourselves, you know. And uh, <laughs> we're having more trouble getting in the White House than George Bush is at the moment. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we, we thought, how do we do this? And then suddenly this guy came running through the crowd and said, Terry Wendy, and actually we didn't know him, but he knew us because we were on the platform that morning, and he said, and then he just took out of his wallet the thing, the pass, and uh, through him, we had our introduction. And actually we got right into the White House, when actually we had the better than the VIP tour, and we went right up and stood at the edge of the Oval Office. I got a lot nearer than George W. Bush. And uh, <laughs> I, I stood there and looked in. And I always remember it because uh, it's when Ronald Reagan was president and they, I was asking questions, what's that, what's that, and what's that? And you remember that great statement of uh, Harry Truman's, the buck stops here. And we had a thing on his desk and he was a bit of a Californian, you remember Robert, Ronald Reagan. And he had a thing on his desk which said, the buckaroo stops here. <laughs> and that was a great privilege. But we had someone who could get us in. Without him, it's a joke, isn't it? You're never going to get in there. But we had found someone who gave us access. And now, what he's saying is here, now we have access. We've got access through him, through Christ. Christ is giving us access through his death. And so, forget the former ways, forget the temple, forget the temple offerings, the sacrifices, the lambs, the way you get anywhere near God, the priestly system, forget it all. Because now, through Christ, We've got someone through his blood has given us access. We've got in. Within the veil has new meaning for us. We get right on in through Christ. In one spirit. We have access in one spirit. Gordon Fee says, in the one spirit replaces the temple as the place of access into the presence of God. God help us to see this incredible thing. Christ has made it possible through his atoning death. But it is by the Spirit that we come into the presence of God. It's by our experience of the Spirit individually and corporately we have access to God in this new covenant relationship. We don't need a physical temple. We're not looking for some stone building somewhere. Now we have access to God. As we've experienced here repeatedly, as you experience in your local church, we have access to God through Christ in the one spirit to God who is now Father. That's totally new. It's totally new. The Israelites of the Old Testament would never dare to have called him Father. Jesus radically used to pray, Father, Abba, Father. Mary must have been so shocked when he heard, she heard him. Abba, Father. But then we get this wonderful promise we can come into that family relationship. Jesus said, when you pray, say, Father. When they first heard that, they must have been so shocked. But when the Spirit came upon them, they cried, Abba, Father. The Spirit of Sonship came in our hearts. I remember feeling that the day I was baptized in the Spirit. I remember asking my old Baptist pastor, what does Abba, Father mean? And he explained it to me, and I still didn't understand. But the day I was baptized in the Spirit, I knew it right from deep within. Oh, Abba, Father. Because the Spirit witnesses with our spirit that we are children of God. A phenomenal thing has taken place. So we have access by the Spirit. So Fee says this, For Paul, it is the common experience of the one Spirit, by Jew and Gentile alike, that attests that God has created something new. Fee's saying the same as Lloyd-Jones, created something new in the body of Christ. Thus, the one spirit has formed them into the one body. Also brings them together as that one body into the presence of the Father. Through Christ's death, by one spirit, we together have access to Father. It's breathtaking what God has done for us. And it was the spirit that made this experientially real for the Christians. In Cornelius' household... Peter went there trembling with all his Jewish background, the battle he had as the, the, the sheet was lowered down out of heaven. He was told to kill what he regarded as unclean food. He, he, he went through that vision at the time, you know it all very well. And he went to Cornelius' home 
And the thing that made him know that they were accepted was the Spirit was on Cornelius. The Spirit came upon him and his household as he explained to his uh, fellow apostles a few days later, as he did on us at the beginning. Who are we that we could withstand God? We are one body by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit has made us one. We already have this awareness of his presence among us. And so it's by that one spirit that we together come to the Father. Again, Gordon Fee says, What has made one body possible is the death of Christ. What makes the one body a reality is their common, lavish experience of the Spirit of God. As they live together in the Spirit, they now have access to the Father. Amen? That's our privilege. When we start here, we start saying, draw close to God, draw near. Pete comes up and says, I see golden rings coming down on you. We let the Holy Spirit have his way here last evening. You know, I'm in the Father's presence. Because I went to a temple somewhere? Because I went to a special building somewhere? No, we came to this building. Tom Jones will be here next week. Tony Blair was here. What's this? No, it's just nothing. We are together in one spirit. We come to the Father. It's God's wonderful work in us. Hallelujah. So we have become God's new society. God's citizens. Verse 19 onwards. Formerly strangers. Uh, Leon Morris says it should be translated foreigners. Formerly foreigners. Aliens. No homeland. Like spiritual refugees. We don't belong anywhere. That's what he's saying. We are strangers. Homeless. No citizenship. Now, fellow citizens. We've got our citizenship papers. We belong. But not just citizens, just to get lost in some nation somewhere. But God's family. We not only come into citizenship, we come into family. We have not only a homeland, but a household. Members of God's own household or family with the Holy Spirit witnessing Abba Father in our hearts. Not only that, God's citizens, God's family, but also God's temple. God's temple. God is now building a temple across the earth. On the foundation, we're told here, of apostles and prophets. Jesus began to establish a new community. That's how he began. I was very struck just, we're going through Mark's Gospel in our own home church at the moment. It was my turn to preach the other day as we just go through the passage. And uh, I came to that passage in Mark 3 when the crowds were pressing in on Jesus. They're pushing him, trying to touch him, overwhelming him. It says Jesus withdrew. He got out of the crowd. Then he chose whom he desired to be with him. It was like he said, I will refuse to let my diary be dominated by the fruits of my success. I must keep my goal in view, my goal. He withdrew from the crowds and he said, my goal, I must gather these 12. He chose those whom he desired to be with him. To be with him. And although he continued ministering to the great crowds, his preoccupation was the 12. And I was looking at that and looking into John 17, which we don't have time to get into now, but it shed fresh light for me of Jesus' preoccupation. In John 17, Jesus says, before the cross... I have finished the work you gave me to do. I've glorified you on the earth. Now, I would think he's speaking somewhat prophetically, including the great work of redemption. But the prayer goes on, on this same line. John 17 goes on. He says, you gave me these out of the world. They were yours, they're now mine. You gave them to me. I have made you known to them. I've made your name known. They have watched me. They know I'm sent from you. I've taught them all that you told me to teach them. Jesus is forming a body around himself. He's gathering a new community. He's shared his life with them totally. He says, now I'm coming to you, Father, but you keep them. I've kept them. Now you keep them. I pray not only for them, but for all those who will believe through their testimony. Jesus is laying a foundation. Jesus is gathering 12 guys and he's giving them revelation. He's giving them understanding. He's gathering within Israel a new Israel. A people formed in him, whom he's giving his life to. He tells the other people things in parables. They're hidden, concealed, mysteries. But to you, I open it all up. The mysteries are all open to you. I share my heart with you, apostles. You 12, you new foundation of this new community in the earth. 
This church is built on the foundation of these apostles. And prophets, it says. And prophets. I don't believe that means the Old Testament prophets. Some would argue that. But you'll see, as we'll see tomorrow morning, uh, the apostles and prophets referred to together in chapter 3 and verse 5, other generations, it wasn't made known to the sons of men as it's now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. We'll come to that tomorrow to see that that revelation that was given to apostles and prophets in the new covenant was the foundation on which this new society is built, the church. It's on the foundation of apostles. Not their, simply their own teaching, but on the men. Included the teaching, but it's not just the teaching. I would hesitate to own, although I've frequently quoted John Stott here, I don't feel comfortable with this quote of his. In practical terms, this means that the church is built on the New Testament scriptures. They are the church's foundation documents. Now that is a subtle switch from what it actually says in the word here. That they were built upon the foundation of apostles. It is built on people whom he gathered and who were added. When 3,000 were saved, how does it describe it in Acts? It doesn't say actually they were saved. It says they were added. What were they added to? They were added to this community that Jesus spent three years forming. And then day by day, they gave themselves, yes, to the apostles' teaching. Certainly their teaching, their doctrine is hugely important. But we must not depersonalize and just say the church is built on documents. It's built, it says here, on apostles. That's how it was. They were built on the foundation of apostles' And prophets. Jesus spent his time forming those people that he could build a community on them. And then Jesus himself, being the cornerstone, he is obviously the uh, corner point. Now you can read many commentaries, you'll find they almost subdivide equally as to whether this is a a key uh, stone in the foundation or whether this is a a headstone in the building. I'm not going to bother to argue. He is obviously the vital point from which we build, whether it's in the foundation or whether it's the headstone. you find men argue either way. He is uniquely central to our building. He is the centre for our hearts. And then built together as a dwelling place for the Spirit. I want to finish with this built together as the Holy Spirit's dwelling place. A place where God lives by his Spirit. From deprived Gentiles who had no hope, foreigners to covenants, no awareness that a Messiah was coming, now we are the very place where God lives. And we're not talking any longer about a material building. We're not talking about a national shrine or a localized site to be visited. Remember the Lord Jesus encountered the woman at the well, and as he began to penetrate through her defense system, he said to her, or she said, should we worship in this mountain or in Jerusalem? And she was raising kind of religious questions, trying to avoid Jesus' penetrating gaze. And Jesus said, it's not this mountain or that mountain, God is looking for those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. He's saying these mountains are not important. We're not putting our hope on earthly things anymore. It's so important we understand that. We're seeking a city which is to come. We're not putting our confidence in any existing city or place or location because we are part of this new spiritual temple. It's an international building spread spread worldwide and made up of many nations. It's so important we grasp that. Again, if I can read Andrew Lincoln, the emphasis on God's presence in the spirit can provide a reminder that when we talk of the spiritualization of the concept of the temple, we're not talking of invisibility or immateriality but of the reality of men and women forming the eschatological people of God, dominated 
by his living power and presence in the spirit. So when we say it's spiritual, not physical, we don't mean it's less real. It's immaterial. We're saying, no, it's where the Holy Spirit is. It's where God dwells in his temple around the world. And then just to quote Fee here, the imagery, this imagery especially emphasizes the church as the new temple, the present place of God's habitation on our planet. What a wonderful statement. It is the present place of God's habitation. On the, it's where God lives. In the Old Testament, God, we're told in the Psalms, God came from Sinai and came to Zion. The glory of God came to Zion. Other mountains, we're told, were jealous of Zion because God's glory says, this is my resting place. I will dwell here forever. We've got to see God breaking back into the planet, if we can put it that way. One day, he appeared to Moses. A bush burned. Moses is terrified at the sight. God speaks from the bush. God is speaking to him from this tiny little context. He says to Moses, go and get my people, bring them back to this mountain. I'll appear to them. So he leaves the bush, gets two million people, brings them back. The whole mountain burns. It shakes, it trembles. The smoke and lightning and thunder, the whole thing shakes. A trumpet from heaven and the voice of God. This is the privilege of these people. Two million people, they actually hear God speak from heaven. And they hear a trumpet from heaven. And they say, Moses, you go up. You know, we don't want to know. But God's there. And then it says in the Psalms, when they went up to Zion, God said, I will move among you. He's in the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant. God's presence, a strange, extraordinary thing that God is among them, but they're not allowed to go anywhere near. He's with them, but distant from them. And they carry the ark up to Zion and then the tabernacle uh, is replaced by the temple and God comes. And the psalmist says, God came. God dwelt here. This is the dwelling of God. God was with them. They were terrified to go into the ark or rather into the inner place in the temple because God was there. Now we're saying this glory of God, God's presence by his spirit is in this new temple. It's where God lives in the planet. It's where God is. Where's God? He's here. On the planet. With his people. We don't need to go to special buildings. He's with us. When we gather. The the present place. The new temple. The present place of God's habitation on our planet. Here is the place of God's presence. In the midst of his people. Especially as they're gathered to worship him. To instruct one another, as it goes on to say in chapter 5, 18 to 20. Here then is how one is to understand all the indwelling terminology in Paul. By the indwelling of the Spirit, both in the individual and in the community. God or Christ indwells his people. Here is the ultimate fulfillment of the imagery of God's presence. Begun and lost in the garden restored in the tabernacle in Exodus 40 and in the temple in 1 Kings 8. It is God's own presence. Oh, amongst us, that marks us off as the people of God. In the language of Moses, it is what distinguishes us from all the peoples on the face of the earth. So not only do we have access to the presence of God, which we've already argued through in verse 18, but God himself, by the Spirit, has chosen to be present in our world in the gathered church. We're where God lives. We're his house. Does the future have a church? It's as sure as the future has a God. We're his dwelling place. We are where God is. And dear friends, that's why we must fight for the recovery of the church, the restoration of the church, as she was at the beginning, as John Wimber once thundered from this platform, God says, give me back my church. We must have church that's alive to the Spirit. We cannot marginalize the Holy Spirit and say he gets in the way of our traditional structures or even of our new developments, God forbid. But we are genuinely open for the manifestation of his presence. We're his dwelling place. This is where God is on the planet. And so this is a fight 
we must fight for. That we are looking for the manifest presence of God in our experience. And he manifests himself through diverse gifts, through prophesying, tongues, interpretation, visions, revelations, signs and wonders and healings and empowerings. He's amongst us. And so for us, it's not so much that we give ourselves, I don't think, to techniques outwardly. We don't want to be ancient and quaint and out of date. By all means, let publicity or whatever be modern and smart and, and relevant. By all means. There's no great credit in being out of date. We don't want to say, oh, we're quaint, aren't we great? <laughs> no, we want to be relevant. But listen, that's not where our hope lies. Our hope lies in an increasing manifestation of the power of God. And a true submission to what it says in here as our hope and our joy and our delight. That there's a people from all tribes and tongues and nations coming together, hallelujah, experiencing the glory and the favor of God upon us. That must be our passion. That's where we must break with all kinds of problems, whether it is, as Nicky Gumbel was saying to us yesterday, do we need 50 more chairs? Or whether we're, you know, we're battling with little fiddly things. We want God. Because this is what he wants. We're his dwelling place. The church of the living God, the temple. We who were nobodies. Aliens. We didn't even have the promises. Now, we've come right into this wonderful temple that is growing and with holiness, which characterize the temple. We who are no-hopers, foreigners, now reconciled, yes, to Jews, praise God, honoring their God, reverencing their background, honoring and esteeming their holy, sacred writings down through the centuries, seeing how men and women of God proved him, learning from their experiences, Yes, united, no longer a barrier, no longer a law that divides us. We don't have to come through law. We don't have to add Sabbath acceptance, circumcision. We don't have to add all these things. Praise God. We're in by the mercy and the grace of God. One family, law abolished, the things that divided have gone. We have access through the blood, by the Spirit, to one common Father. We're a new creation that didn't previously exist. And everyone who gets saved, behold, there's a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, behold, there's another new creation getting added to this corporate new creation. Just like God made the stars from nothing, now he is making from nothing a new creation. This church, this glorious, glorious church. It should wound us when the church is misrepresented. It should excite us when the church begins to be seen for her beauty and for her glory. Experiencing the whole Trinity and being where he dwells with us. Hallelujah. Let's stand to pray. Let's have the band up, please. Let's just raise our hands to pray. Father, we thank you so much what you've done for us in your son. God, we who are no hopers, literally, without God, without hope. <laughs> Hopeless. Now, sons, we have access by one spirit to the Father. Holy Spirit, even now, rest upon us. We're your dwelling place, Lord. Even now, we don't want to just talk about and explain it, Lord. We want to know the wonder of your being here. Holy Spirit, rest on us. Oh, Holy Spirit, manifest the love of God in our hearts. Let the fruit of the Spirit be in us. Love and joy and peace. Keep multiplying your style in us. Keep coming to us, Holy Spirit. Accept our praise, Lord Jesus, that you made it possible. Thank you that you fulfilled the law. Totally innocent. Our wonderful, innocent Savior. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might be the righteousness of God in him. Thank you, Lord. We are the people of God. And he loves us. 
and he's chosen us for himself. Oh, it's wonderful, Lord. We thank you it's not by some accident of birth, but each one of us, Lord, is by the will of God. Lively stones being built together. I ask you, God, even while we're here, build us more together. Build us together. We're not wanting to build to any other name but the name of Jesus. We honor you, Lord Jesus. You're our cornerstone. All our focus is on you, head of the church. We love you, Lord. We want to know you better. We pray, Spirit of God, keep, keep coming to us, we pray. Amen. <laughs>